Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's Sermon Podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn from God's Word in the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. We pray that God's Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Well, good morning. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to share your word across many platforms. Lord, I pray that the distraction of being out of the normal rhythm we are on Sunday mornings wouldn't affect uh, your word in, in the way you desire it to penetrate the hearts of both your children and the people that don't know you yet, God. I pray that this would be a message that would bring you glory, God. We thank you so much for the ability to still do this. And God, I pray... Um, I pray for all the families that are being affected in so many different ways right now, God. I pray that you would, uh, would show them, would, would, would help them to rest in your peace, God, that makes no sense around a time like this. God, for, uh, for the community of Rev, God, I pray that you continue to strengthen us despite the fact that we are separate. God, your spirit still keeps us unified. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for the chance to, to look at your word today, God. And again, I pray that you would be glorified in it and, and all the distractions would be removed from uh, what could get in the way of your word uh, having its effect, its full effect on the hearts of, of your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a year and, and two months and 44 sermons later, we are finally in our last chapter of 1 Corinthians. I, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I'm not really sure I'm, I'm ready to move on. So I think I'm gonna spend the next few months recapping it all. <laughs> wow. Wow, finally someone who realizes just how funny I am. Thank you, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so this is a very interesting chapter. I'm sorry about that. I had to do it. Uh, this is a very interesting chapter. This is one of those uh, sections of Scripture that as an ending to a letter, it's just kind of, it's almost a shotgun approach. It kind of comes at it, uh, comes at it a million of different things. It's almost like the Apostle Paul didn't know that he was going to write a second letter because he just kind of tries to, to hammer out a million different things. And so we're going to kind of take it based on the way that he's communicating it, but also the really great thing about this text is that there is still a really great number of applications for us. There's still really a lot of things that would be fantastic for us to take home, fantastic for the Lord to work in our life, even though it will initially just, just stay with me. It will feel a little bit like we're kind of all over. So we're going we're gonna to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. Probably somewhere like right down here will be the Scripture. And we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. Verse 1, chapter 16. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send, send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, well, awesome. We get to talk about money. I know everyone loves that. There's a, there's a lot going on in here. This is a specific collection that he's doing. It's a collection that is helping the church in Jerusalem. We find out from Acts and, and from history as well that, that the church in Jerusalem is, is really struggling. It's post an extreme famine that they'd been through. And so there's a lot of weakness and brokenness and, 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 
and impoverished people that are, that are needing help. And so the Apostle Paul, kind of on his third missionary journey, went around and made it his point to collect from all the churches in Asia and around to bring an offering to the believers in Jerusalem. It's a really, really beautiful thing. We know also that this was a question that was being raised because he says the now concerning, which he's done over and over and over again in this text. He's come back to a question that they had. So they had some question about this offering. We're not sure if it's that they didn't want to do it, but more just that there was a question about it in general. And he's saying now concerning. The really cool thing is in this section, even though it's, it's dealing with kind of alleviating physical suffering and, and some of the other issues that we see kind of in Acts 20 and, and, and other places in Acts for Jerusalem, it also does a really beautiful thing of, of reminding the, the church in Corinth that they're not alone. Also, at the same point, it would be probably makes sense that the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, is, is again trying to blur the, the Jewish and Gentile boundaries in the church, trying to help them understand that there's, there's a line where these two that shouldn't exist, they're one church, they are, they're in place, which is why you see him over and over again through, through this book specifically talk about other churches, and he'll do that again later on. He kind of gives two reasons for giving in this text. First one is just to support those who share the gospel. So it's a it's a spiritual blessing should be should contribute to material blessing. So what he's saying is Look, the believers in Corinth are believers because of first the believers in Jerusalem. They were the ones that brought the word out now through the Apostle Paul. But he's saying, look, you have spiritual blessing. You've received spiritual blessing. So let's, let's take care of them materially. Let's take care of them because of that. And then the other thing we see is just to take care of the saints. The church in Jerusalem was suffering. They're losing jobs, their, their homes. They, he wants them to be supported because of their suffering for the gospel. And so you see these kind of these two reasons here. He gives some really practical principles for giving, things that we can do that are very, very beneficial for us as a church as a whole. Uh, the first one is he talks about each of you. He's saying each of you should do this. So this isn't a question as to whether or not which one can or can't do it or if you're not in a spot where you can handle it or if you're in this position where you maybe aren't making as much. I, I think of people that will think of different life stages like, oh, when I'm in college, I don't necessarily have to give. No, when he says each one of you, this means that no one is exempt. We also see the Macedonians gave out of their extreme poverty in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 5. So we, we know that even when you're broke, and you're, I mean, you're broke, broke, you're still supposed to give. That's one of the principles that we can take out of here when it comes to giving. And we also see that this was done on the first day of each week. Some context for us. This is not the Sabbath. This is not Saturday. The Sabbath was always Saturday, the seventh day of the week, and that's where it was. Sunday became the day for gathering together because of the resurrection. When Jesus had resurrected, that's when they started moving to Sundays. In the Roman Empire, it was still a work day on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so a lot of times it was in the evening on Sundays when they would do it. But one thing that's really important for us to understand when it comes to money, when it comes to giving things in a form of worship, is first off, in the first century, there wasn't a pagan, a Jew, or a Christian that would have ever come to worship without bringing some form of offering to their form of worship. So every time that they gathered, this would have been the purpose, to bring an offering. And so he's saying, look, the first day of the week, every week it should be done. This kind of a... a principle that we can take out of this is the idea of being disciplined. Again, in the first century, their income varied each week. So what they had made in each week would have changed based on 
the work they did or didn't have. And so he's saying each week you should make this. You should set this aside. You should be disciplined in doing so. You should make sure that you don't just get lax in it, but every single day put it in place. Uh, Two things that are important for us to remember in this text as well, and I think it's important, especially when it comes to giving, is that so often because of our our view or, or because we've seen people maybe in, in, in my position or in the position of the church misuse money or there's lots of things where it's like, man, I want my money to go somewhere else. We, we have all, we've kind of adopted weird principles that maybe aren't actually biblical around our offering and what we're supposed to do. And so I want to kind of just, two things I need to mention that are important about money. The first one, when it comes to giving, the church has adopted this tithe or, or 10%. I want to kind of be clear. I don't, think that's necessarily what the scriptures command when it comes to our offerings or giving. Now, now hear me on this. Uh, the reason why I think that is it'd be really easy, and, and some would argue that's a great starting point for 10% or, or it's just something to be disciplined. But, but too often we start thinking, okay, well, I live on 90% and 10% goes to God. Or we think that because 10% is some kind of legalistic number that we, we strive to get to, that if we don't make it, we can find ourselves feeling guilty like we didn't make it. Or those of us that maybe can make it, we can get a little pious or arrogant in the fact, like, look what I'm doing. I'm, I'm being this way. And, and here's why I don't think 10% is necessarily the mark that we're supposed to just shoot for. Because for some of you in your income, not, not taking debt or anything else, some of you in your income, 10% is way too much. It's way too much for you to even try and sustain or live with the things that you have to be responsible for. 10% is too much. And, and let's be honest, some of you, some of you, 10% is just not much of a sacrifice at all. It's like something you can just do without even thinking about. You don't ever go beyond it. It just kind of happens and it's simple and, and there's no prayer life into it. And it's important for us to understand that the tithe, although we see those things happening in the Old Testament specifically, the tithe didn't really show up before the Mosaic Law. When you see Abraham give to Melchizedek the 10%, that was on his own accord. That was something he desired to do to support the priest that had supported him. When Jacob gives to God, it's, it's out of just excitement of the blessing that he's received. He's saying, look, I'm going to give 10%. Those are numbers that they kind of put in place on their own. God didn't put this down on them. And then when the Mosaic law comes in place, there's really no mention of the tithe expected from God to his people. There's no mention of it necessarily. Now we see some percentages happening, but but most of what was happening was for the theocracy of Israel. It was kind of like a tax. And essentially, it was 10% was given to the Levites because that was their way to live because they were just going to serve the Lord. And then 10% for this, and then a little bit more. Basically, at the end of time, by the time you did dill and all the mints and everything else in place, it was about 23%. That 23% was kind of more of a tax. And so for us today, when we look at our lives, we all pay taxes. So that we have that, that amount that, that needs to be taxes. And that number can change. It can be drastically higher or less depending upon the income we have and, and the government we're under. And, and Romans tells us that we're to obey our governing authority. So we have to pay that. So that's money that we do. When it comes to us giving outside of that, free will giving or spontaneous giving, God doesn't direct a number. He doesn't put, this is the specific number you're supposed to do. I mean, think about the widow in the New Testament. Even Jesus says she puts these, basically what's the equivalent of one penny into the offering. He doesn't stop her, even though that was probably more than she could afford or or, or an immense amount. He doesn't stop her, but he, he acknowledges that she had done a true form of worship. She had given more in her heart than someone that had given a lot more 
in numbers again. So when we look at scripture, a tithe is a good thing. That's fine. 10% is a good thing. But, but my encouragement wouldn't be to get legalistic in it. But instead, when it comes to giving, would you be willing to submit yourself to God? Ask him in prayer, God, what do you want for me to do? And would you be disciplined in it? We see in the scripture every Sunday, every week, and maybe every week isn't for you. You get paid once a month. So maybe it's once a month. But be disciplined in your giving. Let it be a generous giving, a prayerful giving. In, in the New Testament, what we see in Scripture when it comes to money, everything is God's. 100% is God's, not just 90%. All of it's God's. And we see over and over and over again in Scripture that we are to steward what He has entrusted to us. We are to steward the things that God has given to us. And so it's not a matter of me saying, okay, God, here's my 10%. Get that out of the way on the front end. Although, hey, I'm supposed to do the first fruits. I get it. Get it there. But it's a matter of me saying, God, what, what do you want me as your steward to do with the money that you have given me, both for myself, for your kingdom purposes, for spontaneous givings, for extra givings? Is it a specific percentage this month, or do you want more? Is it, or do you want less? Remembering and recognizing that that Jesus just calls us to steward things. He, he says, look, we are, we are gods, and everything that we have, everything, our time, our energy, our effort, our words, our money, our possessions, all of it is gods. And so we need to stop thinking about how we can just give God his 10%, and then we get our 90% and say, God, everything we have is yours. Everything we have is yours. And what do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to use it? That would probably change a lot of things with debt and a lot of things with frivolous spending if we would just ask that question over and over and over again, which is kind of brings me to a second thing because I think too often this kind of seeps itself into ourselves as a church today and in, the, in our church. And again, in any church today, I don't think it's, it's necessarily meant to be there, but this idea that we have, if we give money, God will bless us. If we give him money, he will bless us. It's, it's, it's kind of like God becomes this ATM machine. If I give a little bit, he comes, he's going to give back. It's, it's really kind of this, this prosperity garbage that's taught. See, I, again, we have scriptures that talk about, like Malachi telling God says, test me in this with, with money. And we see scriptures where he's saying, look, those, what, the principle that's there is like, if you, if you sow sparingly, then you'll reap sparingly. If you, if you sow generously, then you'll reap generously. So we see scripture that talks about that. But the, the premise and the point of this isn't that we give so that then God will someday give us some more blessings, although that may happen. The point is, is that we are blessed by God, and so we are to be a blessing. It's, it's the reverse. We need to stop thinking about if I give $100 today, maybe God will give me $200 for a random check tomorrow. We need to stop thinking about this as, God, I've paid my dues. Where's my benefit? Why isn't my business excelling? Why am I not taking more money in? Because I've been generous here. We have to stop thinking about it as an angle or as the posture of, I will give and he will bless. But instead, he has blessed and therefore we are to be a blessing in our giving. We are to be a blessing because he has already blessed us. There's a scripture that talks really clearly about this. It's 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 through 15. It says this. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, here's the idea. Look, what you give sparingly will be given to you sparingly. So we see God does respond to our posture. I think the reason why a lot of people have seen 
blessing after giving blessing is, is more of the parable of the talents. God is seeing that he, you are trustworthy with what he's giving you. And so he's going to trust more to you. And that's where it goes on. It goes on and says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there, right there should be the, the point, the purpose of why we give. He loves it when we cheerfully do so. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things in all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely as he has given to the poor. He is, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Look, it's, it's God that's giving us this. It's him that's entrusting this to us. It's not, it's not us working really hard and making it happen. It's God who's giving it to us. It's him that's making us, helping us see and work and get into a place where we can serve and grow. It goes on in this scripture and it says, you will, uh, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So saying, look, you're gonna be enriched to be generous, and then you can be generous. Again, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the, the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So when we give, it causes people to thank God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. When, when we give out of the blessing that God has given us, when we choose to bless because he has blessed us, God gets the glory, and it's not about us, which is what we're supposed to be doing. He says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. See, when we look at this scripture, what we see is that there's a, there's a principle here. It's, it's all God's. He's giving to us. He's blessing us. We then bless others, and we are to sow generously. That's what we're supposed to do. As we grow in Christ, this area of our lives should grow as well. He goes on in this section in the scripture right here, and he says, look, I want to I make sure that, that, that those who are credited will carry the letter. There's, a, there's an accountability in stewarding the money, not only in those giving, but also from the, the ministries that are given too. So we need to, we need to have people, men, men and women of integrity, people that are financially wise so that we can make sure that the money is being used in a godly way. Another thing that's really beautiful about the word that he uses here in giving is that he does this three or four times actually in the scripture the Apostle Paul does. He, giving is so closely tied to fellowship that he actually uses the word koinonia for giving here. So he's saying literally in your fellowship, in your giving, it's a tying together. And what, it, what, it, what the point and the preface here is, is that giving and receiving in love always forms a bond between the giver and receiver. You cannot share gifts without sharing fellowship. And that's, that's kind of the principle here. This is the principles behind giving. Move on in, in verse, verse five. And he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will, do, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of, for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And then a little bit further down in verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother, Apo our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Okay, so this section right here is really just talking about what the Apostle Paul is hoping God will do and allow him to do 
moving forward. He's saying, look, after Pentecost, which was the festival of the weeks, this was kind of a, a, a grain harvest celebration that culminated and and kind of concluded 50 days after Passover. And so this is how we kind of know the timing of when this book was written. Um, the purpose of this feast was to recognize the Lord as the provider of all crops, as the one who deserves the first fruits of all produce. You can see how that, that kind of cultural thing that was happening right then kind of fed itself through the scripture. But what we see is one really brilliant, brilliant thing that happens in this section here. He has plans for travel. And so often for us, we make plans. I plan to, to graduate school at this point. I plan to get married at this point. I plan to, to work my way up in my job this way. We plan to have this many kids. We plan, we plan, we plan, we plan. But the Lord, the Lord gives us such a beautiful principle that I think every single one of us need to recognize in our lives, especially the ones that are more controlling, the ones that are struggling so much right now because they're quarantined in their home and they can't control the outcome of what's happening. This is such a beautiful and big point he makes in here and it's right here in verse 7 he says for i do not want to see you, i do not want to just see you now just in passing I me mean, i don't want to just stop by i hope to spend time with you if the lord wills if the lord permits guys when it comes to us and our plans and our and our purposes and what we are doing as individuals that are children of god we have got to put that statement in and not only just there as a, oh, I should say this so I sound holy, but as an I am fully submitted to what the purpose and the will of the Lord is. See, he says, he says look, I want to be there. The Apostle Paul is, has shared for a long time, he longs to be back with the believers in Corinth. He's in Ephesus. And so he says, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go up through northern Greece, and I'm going to kind of work my way through, and I'm going to make the collections. And then I long to just spend the whole winter with you guys in, in Corinth and, and do these things. This is my desire. But... It's only going to work, and I'm only going to do it if it's the Lord's will. And then he says just another brilliant principle in this section. He says, he says look, I'm ready to move on. I, I desire to move on, but I can't yet. And even though he says he wants to, and he says that he wants the Lord's will, he says, look, I need to stay here. Why? Because what has God done? He has, for I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Why would he do that when he wants to be somewhere else? He desires to be somewhere else. He's saying, look, I want to be there, and I know it's if the Lord wills, but I, I need to stay here in Ephesus right now. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Guys, this is such a, a big thing. How many of us don't see the work that the Lord is doing for the gospel as a priority to stay in a spot that we are for good reasons wanting to leave? How, how many of us, we miss the fact that God is at work. He's, he's doing the gospel and, and presenting the gospel in and through your life. And we're just so upset about the job we're in or the stage of life it's in. And we want to we push past the stage route that we entirely miss the wide open door to our family member or a friend or a coworker that is, is, is ripe for hearing and knowing the gospel. So often we run. He's staying even though he desires to be somewhere else, and even though there are many adversaries. That's another whole other point that we don't have time to walk into. But he's, he's literally staying in place, even though it's difficult, and it's hard, and there's many adversaries. But he sees that the gospel is, has a wide door, and so he must keep doing it. How many of us continue to miss that? He brings up Apollos. If you remember back at the very beginning of this book, there was a, a bunch of followings happening with Apollos, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul. Paul had been saying the whole time that they were not separate, that they were together in the ministry, that there was no way to divide them, just like you can't divide Christ. And he comes to the section in verse 12, where he's like, now, now concerning 
our brother Apollo. So again, now concerning, this must be a question that has been asked by some. Like, where is, where is Paul or where's Apollos? What's going on? He says, I strongly urged him or, or strongly continued to remind him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will. Now, the way that we can read this was that it was not the will of the Father. There's a lot of speculation on what this was. Some assume that Apollos maybe doesn't want to come because he's, he's upset with the Corinthians about trying to f- make a following of Apollos. Again, that's all speculation. That's all conjecture. What we can say is that in truth, in line with what he's talking about here and what's true to what the Apostle Paul is saying is that it's the Lord, when it's the Lord's will, Apollos will come. That both Apollo and Apollos are submitting their plans and their desires and their wants to the direction of God. And so it's very important, it's, it's vital for us to recognize that when we make plans, it's okay, plans are good, but we need to be not only open, but postured in a way that God's will is always the first priority in our lives. We can't let ourselves continue to lose sight of this. We can't miss the fact when we live, when we work, when we parent, when we educate, all of those things, when we do it, We can't lose sight of the fact that the very first thing that needs to be in our question, and not just a statement we throw like, oh, glory to God, and not really mean it, but we need to really understand that we need to ask the question, God, is this the will for my life? And let ourselves submit to him and hear from him in everything we do. Okay, moving on into verse 10 through 11 as we're going to come back to here. It says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let us let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And then a little bit further down into verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to those, be submissive to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So this section right here is a, is a big section, again, kind of reminding people in Corinth that they're not alone. But, but there's a couple principles in here that are just really, really brilliant that I want us to look at first off. First, the first thing is he's kind of laying out some of these people. These are all names that, that are weird to us, but they're all names of people that we know that the people in Corinth know. So Stephanus is, is most likely it. There's some that say he's potentially the one writing this for the Apostle Paul. We don't, we don't know that for sure. Fortunatus and Achaicus, we, we assume are potentially in what's most likely in place. They are freed men. They were once slaves, and maybe they're part of the household of Stephanus, but we don't, again, we don't know what it is, but we know that everyone in Corinth knows who these people are. And he says something here that I just, when I, when I read it, it just like dropped me and just blew me away because he says, he says, be subject. He's saying, look, these are people that are, they've devoted themselves to the service of the saint. And he's saying, submit yourself to people like this. And he talks about Timothy. He's like, look, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. So we know from other scriptures, Titus and, and Timothy as well, that Timothy was young and he was also half Jew, half Greek. And that kind of caused some, some people to not really trust him on either side of the boat. But he's saying, look, Put him at ease, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. 
what Timothy is doing is the same thing I'm doing. What Stephanus is doing is they've devoted themselves to the serving of the saints. These are, two, these are people that are, that are doing God's work. He also asks, um, he asked them to not despise Timothy. Some assume with Timothy that he's probably coming back with the letter or he's going to be the one there rebuking them in place of it. So maybe the Apostle Paul is, is wrestling or, or kind of in front of trying to say, hey, don't, don't get mad. Don't shoot the messenger, Timothy. He's, he's doing God's work, which is the same thing I am. And he's coming back. He's going to say something. He's going to rebuke you. And that might be some of it. But he also says, help him on his way. This is not just... This is not just a, hey, help him and feed him. This is to, to, to clothe him, to give him money, to send him on his way because he's doing the Lord's work. But in all of this, what we see in this section is that it takes many people playing the role that God commands of them and submitting themselves to, the, to God in doing God's work. And one of the things I think is just so beautiful, and this is where we lose sight, and I think, I think this is something as a church that around the world after this whole social distancing thing, we will understand even greater how much value there is in being face-to-face. And we see that here with the Apostle Paul. He says, look, um, I rejoice at the coming because they have made up for your absence. Now, he's not saying that in a negative way. What he's really saying is he's saying, look, it's a positive. He's, he's thanking them for their generosity. Thank you for sharing them, sending them in your place, is what he's saying. He goes on, and then he says, Verse 18, and this is so good. For they refreshed my spirit. They refreshed my spirit. This is something that I just, I kind of I pause for a moment. We, we all know those people that when they walk in the room, they just, it's like, oh, they're here. It, it's nice. You don't ever want to be the person where they, when you walk in the room, like, oh, Brent's here. Great. Like, no, I think all of us want to be the people that when we walk in, we refresh the spirit of another person. We, we bring about a, a joy. Don't you love people that refresh your spirit when you see them? It just, you just relax. And it's just like, it's like a calmness comes over you and it's like, it just feels right. Many of us are longing for that thing right now. We're longing for those people that refresh our spirits to be in our life and we can't because of the social distancing. I would still encourage you to press into each other, whether it's a FaceTime or anything else, because, because we still need our souls refreshed. But could we commit to be people like that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be right for you and I to say that we're, we're going to be people, we're going to commit to ourselves to be people that refresh the spirits of others? What about refreshing the spirits of, of, our, of our families or those closest to us? Are you, are you someone that, that, that takes advantage of the fact that people know you, but you don't really spend time refreshing them? people that are closest to us, our spouses, our kids, our coworkers. Like, could you be someone that refreshes the spirit of others? What if you made it a, a goal, a desire, not because you're trying to, to, to make it about you, but made it a goal and a desire that every interaction you had with people would refresh their spirit to a level where they'd just be like, man, so encouraged. Or so much so that we would be saying things like he says right after 18, says, well, give recognition to these people. Recognize them. He, he's saying, look, the body of believers, people are playing a role. We're supposed to recognize them. We're supposed to submit ourselves to people like this. We're supposed to follow them. We're supposed to see it as a family. We are not one or the other. We are all together. This is something that he's saying, look, the church, you're not alone, Corinth. You're not alone at all. And that's why he says, sends greetings from the church in Asia. They send, they send greetings. And he talks about Aquila and Prissa, which, look, I, I gotta say, I, I feel their pain. 
Like, because I'm married to Jen, and my name is Bren. And so every time we introduce ourselves, this is why I always say Jennifer. Because I inevitably, if I say, I'm Bren, and she says she's Jen, someone always goes, ha, your name rhymes. It's like, yeah, we, we've never heard that. I bet Priscilla and Aquila heard that all the time. And so I totally get their pain here. But he brings them up because they're a couple that's well-known in Corinth. They're, they're probably pretty wealthy in Corinth as well. And they're the ones that actually, if you look at Acts, they're the ones that corrected Apollos in some of his misunderstandings of, of the gospel and the understandings. They were the ones that taught him there. And they have this house church there. And he says, look, we're sending greetings. We're doing the same thing. We're trying to refresh the spirit, helping you see Corinth, helping you see Rev 22. You're not in this alone. There are churches all over the valley, all over the world that are doing the same thing that we're doing, striving to be a blessing to others, striving to be a, a, a light and a, and, and a salt to this dark world, striving to find ways to love people and to love the Lord. This is, this is meant to be an encouragement. He says, look, we're supposed to be together in this and we need to see this. And there are people in your life, people in your life, guys, that, that you've seen this, that you're like, man, he says, submit to people like that. Follow people. Subject yourselves. That's such a word that we don't like. But he's saying, if you see someone that's devoted to the Lord, that's following the Lord in faith and in goodness, if you see someone doing that, follow them. Submit yourself to them. Be like them. But the one thing that we can do as people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be refreshing the souls of other people. When we call people, we should be refreshing. This isn't an excuse to, to not call someone when you're struggling. You might, in fact, need, be struggling need to reach out to someone that can refresh your spirit. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes on to this, greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't even know if I can say that word in social distancing right now. I'm not even sure if that, that's something I'm allowed with things. I, I don't know. In the, in the Near East, kiss on the cheek was, a close, was for close friends and family. They would do this all the time. Guys, usually guys with guys and gals with gals. Um, the church implements this idea in the first century. And, and, and essentially, in a, in a very not subversive way, but in a very obvious way to say that we are a family. And so he's saying, look, greet one another with a holy kiss. One scholar says it this way. For others, the greeting kiss could be simply an expression of friendship and goodwill. But among Christians, it assumed a deeper meaning. It symbolized the unity, the belonging together of Christians in the church of Jesus Christ. The kiss expressed not merely friendship and love, but more specifically, reconciliation and peace. We see this in Genesis um, 33 and 45 and 2 Samuel 14 and, and Luke 15. In fact, the kiss exchanged between believers soon was referred to by the early church, get this, hear this, as the kiss of peace. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to adopt this in the church today, but there's something really beautiful about the idea of seeing the church as family, recognizing that reconciliation and peace is what we're supposed to be doing with each other. It's, it's how we're supposed to operate with each other. To greet one another with a holy kiss is a call for regular, concrete expression of the oneness that is ours in Christ Jesus. So we, we have got to see in this section here that, that, that we're not alone, that there are people all over, not just me, there are people all over serving God faithfully in, in, in Rev and outside of Rev and all over the world, and we are to, to submit ourselves to them, to encourage them, to refresh one another, and to recognize that if we bear the name of Christ, if we say Christian, little Christ, then we are one, and we are to be at peace with each other, to, to be, be a form of reconciliation with each other. Verse 13 goes on. He says this. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Verse 13 and 14. These are military words. 
this is a military presence with a gentle heart. The kind of the, the section here that we have to understand, act like men, and we're going to talk about this a lot in our men's retreat that's now been moved to September 18th, so get signed up for that. But this act like men can also be, be mature or be courageous, be strong and courageous is, is another way that that can be said. Uh, what, what did the Corinthians need to be on guard about? If you think about it, when we say be watchful and be on guard, like what, what, are we, what are we watching out for? He's saying, look, they needed to guard themselves against the temptation to judge each other and treat each other on the basis of their secular social status rather than their shared status as brothers and sisters in Christ. They needed to be on the, the alert for the corrupting influence of bad company and bad theology. They needed to make sure that they did not continue to in or fall into sexual immorality or become complacent about the dangers of greed, idolatry, and self-centered religion. This whole book talks about ways that they had not been watchful, that they weren't on guard. To, to stand firm in the faith. Again, another military term. This is something that would have been, when you hold your ground, you don't, you don't let them take anything from you. They obviously wouldn't have used faith in the military, but he's saying it's, it's not merely to hold strong doctrinal theology, but actually, like, it's, it's not just about convictions, but perhaps it's, it's to persist in acting in a way that's true, that's consistent with faith in Christ, that's, that's consistent with those doctrinal convictions and theologies that we have. Standing firm in the faith is to, is to literally hold your ground and not let yourself be tossed to and fro by culture or by people or be influenced by podcasts that aren't healthy. It is, it is to say, no, I'm going to stand firm in the faith of Christ through his word and his word alone. Again, the act like men or the be fully mature or to grow up or to be courageous, it's not merely, it's basically what it's saying is faithfully carry out one's responsibility even in the face of extreme danger. No matter how difficult, no matter how hard, and no matter how isolated you may feel, be courageous, be mature, be strong. In the face of difficulties, to be courageous is to not give in to fear or hopelessness. Hear me on this, guys. This is what this is saying. Don't give in to fear or hopelessness. How many of us have already given in to fear or hopelessness in our two, three days of quarantine? Don't give in to. Be courageous. Be mature. Act like men. Grow up. Be strong. It's the same thing that that God says to um, Joshua, be strong and courageous. He says it over and over again. Hey, my servant Moses is dead. That's a cool moving on. Now you be strong and courageous. Like think about how intimidated he would have felt. But he can not walk in fear, not be immature, not shrink back. He can be courageous and strong because he says the promise that we all need to hear, for, for I am with you. The Lord is with you in your isolation, in your struggles. He is with you. Be strong. Be strong. He goes on and says, in verse 14, let all that be done, all that you do be done in love. Man, he spent a whole chapter 13 on this, saying that the point of everything, if we do anything and we lack love, we've missed it entirely. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to this. Listen to that. One scholar says this about love. He says, God is glorified when people act in love. When they put the welfare of others first and worship God in a way that is consistent with his own character. Self-sacrificing love is the model given to us by Christ and the key to the health and growth of his church and to the maturing of both individuals and the communities to which they belong. Christ-like love is a principal manifestation of God's renewed humanity, the sign that God's work in us, the work which will ultimately result in the resurrection of the dead and of our complete renewal has already begun to manifest itself. Guys, whatever you do, do in love. 
So what do we, what do, we do with this section of Scripture? There's so much. There's, there's all kinds of things. Again, I, I think there's, there's a number of principles. There's a number of really brilliant principles in here that, that my assumption is that maybe one or two of these the Lord has really pushed on you today. And the, the first one is, is, is the principles of giving. Is, is finances, are finances controlling you? You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, for, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So often we want our heart to be on the right things, but we keep giving our money elsewhere. And we keep asking God, change our heart. And he says, no, give your treasure where you want your heart to be and your heart will follow. Guys, that principle is so true of us today. Maybe we need to be more faithful. We need to recognize that 100% is God's. Not 90, 80, 50, 100% is God's and we steward it. And we steward it with, with accountability we steward it in a way that when we sow generously, he will give generously. We see parables of the talents where he says, I will entrust more to those who are trustworthy of little. Like we, we see this over again. So maybe, maybe that's what you need to look at today. Maybe that's where the God is pushing you. Maybe it's, maybe it's just with your plans. Some of you right now, I, I, Jen and I are experiencing this. We had, we had plans that have been totally disrupted. And it's really hard to get your plans disrupted, but it's not the Lord's will for us right now. We can't go that way. So maybe for you right now, you're, you're trying to think about your career or, or dating relationship into a marriage or, or you're talking about kids or, or you're trying to think if you should take this other job or move to this location or, or even right now, you're, you're thinking about what church you should be attending. The first question you need to be asking and the primary question you need to be asking is, 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 does the Lord will? If the Lord will, I will move. If the Lord's will is that I will do this, this is where you're supposed to give yourself. Where do you need to be more open-handed in your life? What areas have you been too closed-handed and said, I'm going to do this, and you've not allowed God's question of his will to even come close to penetrating it? We need to open our hands. Where do you need to be more open-handed? Maybe, maybe for some of you, it's, it's real, you realize, like, man, there are people in your life that are refreshing your spirit. You need to recognize them. You need to thank them. You need to encourage them. Maybe there are people in your, in your life that you realize that you, that's the primary role that God wants you to be. He wants you to be a refresher to their spirit, and you need to give yourself to that. Maybe it's just remembering that you're, you're a family. Some of you right now, you have issues with people in the church. Look, I cannot say this clearer. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The scriptures are very, very clear. The children of God are going to be the children of God forever. We will be his and he will be ours and that makes us each other's. And so we have got to see the church bigger than just our narrow little one kind of extension or small extension of a church in our smallest part of the world. We are tied together. We're a family. And, and I'm not going to make you guys kiss each other because I'm sure that the CDC wouldn't like that. But recognize that ultimately we are. We are one. We are family. And there are people that we're going to have to, like Timothy's going to show up in our life. We're going to we're gonna have to encourage him because people have been discouraging him. And we're going to have to then give him money and send him on to what God's calling us there. And there are people that, that are working in the background over and over again that have just been faithful people that you're like, man, I need to, I need to submit myself. I need to follow someone like that. I need to ask that person to disciple me because the way I see they live their life. Maybe you realize that you're not worth following and you're not worth submitting to. Maybe that's what God's pushing on you here. And don't. Don't run from that. Don't, don't squirm out of that. Maybe the, maybe the thing you, you took from today is that you just need to be watchful. You need to stand guard. You need to be strong and courageous. But most of all, you need to do everything in love. Have you let your guard down? Are you being tossed by culture? Are you maturing in Christ? The, is the ground being taken from you as you continue to give yourself to fear 
and, and, and isolation and hopelessness? Or are you standing firm no matter what storm hits against you and you're planted recognizing that ultimately God is victorious. He knows what my business needs. He knows the needs my family has. He knows what is going to happen. He is good and he is faithful and he's sovereign and he is my king and he is who I serve. In spite of everything that's happening in this world, ultimately I know that he is renewing all things and therefore I'll give myself to that. Maybe you just need to hear that today. Maybe you just need to recognize that you have not been watchful. You've not been on guard. You've not been mature. You've not acted like a man. You've not been courageous or strong. Maybe for you, you've, you've done all those things, but you've been a complete jerk. You've forgotten the, the very premise, the whole point of the whole book, that, is, that, that everything we do is pointless if it's not done in love. Wherever it is, I'll, I'll end the way the Apostle Paul does. He takes the pen out of whoever's writing his, his letter, and he comes down in verse 20, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And he says, Marin, the word we get, Maranatha, O Lord, come. He's saying right here, he's saying, look, God, if there's someone that doesn't love you, would you come? Would you come and would you separate it out? Would you, would you divide it out? Bring, separate the wicked from the righteous. Come now today, renew all things. Let your resurrection be today so that we can live. And he says at the end in verse 23, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the grace be with you. For my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Rev, I love you. I'm praying for you. Because your pastors want to walk with you through this. Wherever the Lord is pushing on you, normally we'd say, hey, go to the prayer room. Well, just in case you guys are wondering, the prayer room is still there, but no one's in there. But that doesn't mean prayer is not happening. If you need to be prayed for, you can. if you want to just have invite the entire community to pray for, just throw it up on Rev's Facebook page. If you have something maybe a little bit more private you need to talk through, please email one of the pastors. Please let us know. We want to be praying for you. We want to walk with you. Wherever it is the Lord is taking you, please, please reach out. Let us pray with you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for 1 Corinthians. It's, it's crazy to think that we're finally done with it and moving on. Lord, we, we know that you are good and we're excited to just start another book because that's all our desire is, is to share God's word. And so, God, I pray that you would do what you do best. Your spirit would convict, would encourage, would admonish, whatever needs to happen, would exhort, whatever needs to happen in the hearts of your believers that are watching this, God, I pray that you would work. God, for the individuals that are maybe hearing this for the first time and don't believe in you, God, I pray that they would see this chaos around the world and they would see these bright spots of lights and these lights would be people that refresh other people's spirits. These lights would be your children that are beacons of hope and beacons of, of no fear because we know that ultimately we are to fear you and you alone, God. Beacons of people that, that carry out and walk in courage and strength that would show them the truth, God, for those that are disconnected. God, for the families that are struggling right now, the families that are, are at, it, at odds, God, would you help them to be at peace with each other? We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for what you're doing. We thank you for all that First Corinthians has taught us. As difficult as a book as it was, God, you have done amazing things in the hearts of so many people, and I pray for more. I pray for more stories of people submitting themselves entirely to your word. I pray for more stories of people coming to know you through your word, and I pray for more stories of people being just present with you with every aspect of their life striving to bring glory to you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.